And now it's time for the Sports Illustrated Longhorn Maven Podcast with your hosts, Chris and Dalton. Welcome to the wide world of Longhorn Sports here on the Sports Illustrated Longhorn Maven Podcast. I'm Dalton Sweat with publisher of Longhorn Maven, Chris Dukes. And Chris, how's it going today? Oh, I am just uh, great. You know, just recovering from a long weekend and uh, a lot of work, but uh Right back at it on uh, nose to the grindstone and ready, ready to talk some Texas football. Yeah, well, uh, how was it in uh, in uh, Dallas this last week? And you, this was your first uh, your first trip in the press box. That had to be a pretty cool experience. Oh yeah, it was a it was a bucket list. It was a bucket list experience. Honestly, uh, you know, got got to go down a field level, walk through the tunnel. Um, it, it's there's there's no event in sports quite like that. The atmosphere is 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 incredible. It's off. It's it's, it's off the charts as far as sports experiences. I recommend it to everybody. Well, you know, it's so unique with a stadium that's literally split right down the middle. Fan base on one side, opposing fan base on the other. You're right. It is very unique. It's not something you see really anywhere. And, and they, uh, you know, they talked about and, and you, know, you hear all, like, from, from different people that have been in just constant noise. And you don't really understand it until you're there. <laughs> And the fact that you can feel, legitimately feel momentum swing from one, one side to the other. It is, <laughs> it is in the air. It is, it is something that everybody, it's like a, a, another sense that everybody has whenever that's going on. Well, let's go ahead and get into the game. And I know for um, UT fans, it wasn't, it wasn't really the day that they were hoping to, to see. Uh, you know, it was only, only a 34-27, you know, it was close, but... It's just one of those. It doesn't really matter what the score is if you don't win the ball game. It impacts your entire season. Yeah, and and I mean, you can you can look at. And I know we're going to dive real deep into this game, uh, and there's some there's some positives to glean out of it. But it probably wasn't as close competitively as the score would indicate. I, I really don't feel like at any point Texas had the upper hand. I mean, they they were able to. Hats off to the to, to to everybody that kept that game close, but it, it really felt like Oklahoma kind of dominated from a physical standpoint for most of the game. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I've, I've I've been thinking about this, and there's really two ways I see that you can look at this ball game uh, from a Longhorn perspective. There's a positive and a negative, uh, and and the, and the positive is is kind of what we were talking about earlier is that you know Texas was in this ball game. They were in it with LSU, you know, at least a top 10, if not a top 5 team. They were in it with OU, same idea, you know, a, a top 10 team in the country, keeping them within a score. It shows that UT belongs on the field with these types of programs, with these national championship contenders. Um, and I really feel like if you want to look at it from the positive side of things, that's not something you could say a year ago or maybe two years ago. Um, and so when you're, you're talking about, about trending in the right direction, Texas could have won this ball game. They were in it to the very end. Yeah, I kind of compared it to, uh, you know, if you watch a lot of UFC, you know, a, a guy that's on the ground but in, in guard the whole fight, that's just, you know, one hold away from, from, from pulling off the victory. Yeah, they, they were in this game up until the, the very end, up until that – Onside kick went out of bounds. Honestly, <laughs> uh, you can look at it like that, and, and that that is that's the the glass half full obvious uh, way that people have been kind of. I mean, some people have been taking away from it, mm-hmm. but if you read the internet, which you know, <laughs> you tends to go the other direction. There's there are a lot there's a lot of impatience 
uh, for Texas to be not just invited to this party with these these top five, top ten teams. Yeah. And I'd argue maybe two of the top three teams in the country right now that they've played. Uh, but to, to be among those teams and a blue blood program like Texas, fans are always going to expect that. And uh, I mean, that's trying to figure out what it takes to get over that last little bit is, is where Texas still is right now. Yeah, no moral victories, whatever you're, you're the University of Texas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I said, there are definitely positive things you can apply towards the future, but there, there, was, no, there was nobody feeling good about themselves in, in Burn Orange uh, yeah. after the game was over. I mean, just uh, the, the score says it was a one-touchdown game with an onside kick that, that looked like it had a real shot. It looked like it had a real shot uh, of this swinging into a potential overtime uh, type game. That, that's the positive. The, the negative is the eye test. Anybody who watched the game knows that OU was the better football team. I mean, yeah. it, was just, it, was, it was obvious watching that they had more talent. Um, or at least were able to put it together in, in a facet that made them a better football team on both sides of the ball. Right, and 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 really the the, the really distressing part for Texas is OU was so much better in two two places that Texas considered to be a strength on on the offensive line and on the defensive line. They they, they dominated in the trenches on both sides of the ball. Nine sacks. Uh, you know, uh, they've got two 100 yard rushers on here. Rushed for 276 yards, 7.3 yards per carry. For, for Oklahoma from from an offensive line that by most people's account came into this game beat up. You know, they had two two tackles that both starting tackles ended up playing, but neither at 100%. Uh, really not what – I mean, we, we talked about it on the podcast last week, you know, that if, if Texas had a, a, an obvious advantage that they could press, it was probably against that OU offensive line, and it, it clearly wasn't at any point during, <laughs> during that game. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um Oklahoma moved the ball at will. They just kept moving, and it was big plays that kept Texas in it. The defense making some huge plays on turnovers that kept the score close. But if you're just looking at the the way that the ball moved, Texas struggled to gain yards, and OU did not. Exactly. Um, And... You know, going back to you know the glass half full thing, uh, one of the things that Texas always prides itself on is, is defense in the red zone, and they were once again were really really good in that area. You know, mm-hmm. they, they hold the, to the one field goal, the two they get the two turnovers. Todd Orlando does such a good job of really maximizing the defensive advantage that you have against these spread offenses in 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 the red zone when those windows start to close down. He's really good at creating havoc and making. Quarterbacks think they're seeing one thing and when they're really seeing another thing. And uh, we saw that with a couple of turnovers in the red zone. Yeah. Um, we'll break down the defensive play here in a little bit. Let's start start out with the offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, Ellinger's stats were poor. I mean, just pr- pretty poor across the board. He had about 200 yards uh, passing, no touchdown passes, no interceptions. And he did uh, uh, run into um, rushing touchdowns. But only 23 yards rushing on, I think it was almost that many attempts, you know. I mean, it was, it, I mean, I know that they count sacks, sacks in, a, in his attempts and, and, and negate rushing yards. But still, he wasn't, the leader of the team wasn't moving the ball very well. To me, though, I couldn't believe some of the passes that he was making. We've talked about accuracy before on this podcast. He was making some really incredible passes that were just getting dropped. I mean, receivers being led Two hands in front of them, ball hits the ground. You know, a deep pass down the, the left sideline, 35 yards in the air. It couldn't have been any more on target, and the ball's dropped. 
I kept looking at this thinking Ellinger's holding up his end of the bargain for the most part here, and he's not seeing the res- the, the support from his wide receivers. I, I think if you don't have Ellinger out there on that field, this is probably one of those 41 to 10 type games. <laughs> yeah. I, I legitimately, I think he was willing this team back into the game at some points. Uh, you know, the stats aren't going to show just, just how, I, I feel like, how gritty of a game he played. I mean, when you get sacked nine times and you're still making those throws in the fourth quarter that he was making, it, it shows incredible mental toughness and mm-hmm. resiliency and, you know, all the things you want out of the leader of your program. Yeah. He, he was, like I said, the, the stats don't show up and they weren't able to move the ball, but I just kept seeing things that impressed me from Sam Ellinger. Uh, I, 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 I don't see this game as a, as a blemish on his resume this year. Not at all. And, you know, we, we, uh, we talked about which team had the better quarterback going in, and I think that's still a legitimate argument that should go on through, uh, through what we're – I mean, it should continue on from here. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like he, he played as well as, 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 as the guy on the other side of the field, as well as Jalen Hurts, um, and gave his team a chance to win. It just didn't have the team around him on this day that – Yeah, that there, was a, there was a drop pass. I think it was Colin Johnson going over the middle on a slant route. Um, that ball hit him square in the hands, and it looked like if he caught that ball, it was an 80-yard touchdown. Right. You know, and you 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 add one or two of those, that 35-yard pass we were talking about down the left sideline, you add one or two of those, and all of a sudden his stats look perfect. You know, they look just fine. Yeah. And he just, it, it felt like the support wasn't there from the rest of the team. But he did get some support in the run game. Uh, I know there wasn't a lot of rushes from the running backs in this ball game, but... Um, you know, Roshan Johnson might have sealed the deal on who's the starting running back at Texas with this ball game. You know, eight carries, 95 yards, and a touchdown, but he looked really good. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that's the first uh, run that Texas has had over 50 yards since 2016, that 57-yarder he had in the first half. And that really just brought to life an offense that had done absolutely nothing up to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, showed some showed some explosiveness that you haven't seen from a Texas running back like since since Deontay Foreman left. Uh, really probably didn't get enough touches, especially once they started figuring out, you know, that that, that was a, a potential way to, to maybe beat an aggressive OU defense is, is, is kind of run right at them like they did uh, with, with Johnson a few times. Uh, Definitely a bright spot, something to look forward to going forward. You know, he's had two now, now two really good games back to back. You know, he had a really good game against against West Virginia as well. Uh, he's got all the momentum on his side. I, I don't think you know Tom Herman kind of talked about on Monday in his press conference. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and when you've got uh, referencing Carry On Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Referencing Keontae. Keontae sorry, 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 <laughs> Hey, I don't I know where that one came from. I watched Monday Night Football too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, referencing Keontae, you don't you don't throw you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and and when you've got a, a guy that is has, has as much talent as Ingram does, you've you've got to take it upon yourselves to try to get him some more carries and, and get him a little confidence, and I think that that's something we'll see against Kansas. And then let's talk a little bit about the wide receivers. Last week we said we we thought that OU had the better wide receiver core, but it was close. It didn't look that close. Um, on Saturday, I mean, uh, CD just looked at like the best player on the field. You know, CD Lamb was all over the place, could not be tackled. It was impressive watching him play football. Uh, and, but at the same time, there were some positives on the UT side besides the drops we've 
kind of addressed already. There was a stretch in there when the entire UT offensive mindset was throw the ball to Colin Johnson. And it didn't really matter how many times in a row. I think they threw it to him four times. He got a, two pass interferences in a row. If, if they weren't hanging on him, then he was catching the ball. And it was just go back to him, hit him again, hit him again, hit him again. Um, and so there was some impressive uh, plays from the, from the UT wide receiver core. There were a few. And, and uh, I, I would argue that, you know, with, with Duvernay, I don't think they necessarily put him in all the best positions to make great plays. I mean, they kept going back to that that wide receiver screen that was not working over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think you really saw what this offense was missing with, when Kyle Johnson out, and that's just a consistent guy who can make plays on the outside, uh, a, a guy that can take some pressure off of, off of your short passing game and, and open things up down the field, and a guy that if you put it near him, he's almost always going to be the guy who comes down with it. Yeah. Um, like I said, there was, I, I was literally yelling at my screen at one point, just throw it to Johnson. Throw it to Johnson. Because every time it seemed like if something good happened when the ball was going towards him, whether it was a pass interference or, or an actual catch. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, this was a pretty lackluster offensive performance for, for UT. So let's move into the defensive side of things. It's still difficult with all of that yardage that was given up, but there were, there were a lot of big plays. That first half, that first quarter, could have been 21 to nothing in a heartbeat if there wasn't a forced fumble and an interception uh, that, this, that this UT defense put up. Uh, yeah, and, and one of the weird things is it, I, I think that maybe the UT players listened to our podcast and tried to prove us wrong because not only, not only were we way off on the, uh, the, on the defensive and offensive line situation, but we were off on the, the young corners who both played a pretty admirable game. I mean, you know, we just talked about how CeeDee Lamb had 10 catches for 171 yards. But, but you got some big plays out of, out of Anthony Cook and out of Deshaun Jameson. Jameson doing to force the fumble. Cook came up with some – I mean, we did a pretty admirable, admirable job covering most of the day. Really can't put the blame on either of those guys for, for things that went wrong during this game. So I got to question Orlando a little bit with this defensive game plan. Because we talked about last week, are they going to put pressure? Are they going to hang back? Are they going to have a spy? They didn't do any of it. Uh, I mean, they played three down linemen the entire game. Maybe a spy occasionally, but not very consistently. And then very rarely brought any sort of pressure. And when they did, it seemed to hit home and and cause Jalen Hurd to make some pretty glaring mistakes, whether it be a fumble or an interception or just throwing the ball up to, to let somebody go and get under it, to me it looked like more pressure would have had a chance to be pretty effective. Yeah, uh, and that's another thing they talked about after the game that you know they, they went to they went to a lot of man man to man defense because uh, they kind of felt that OU would be able to just pick them apart in the zone. With the, their, their concepts are a lot of them are specifically designed to just eat up those eat up those soft zone coverages. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that they thought they could man up and, and win those head-to-head battles and get, get pressure home with their defensive linemen like, like, I mean, like we talked about all week. You know, they, everybody kind of thought that some of these guys could – like a Malcolm Roach could have some success in this game. And, and those guys just weren't able to get home. They were, they were being blocked. And Well, you're, and you're only rushing three right. against five. I mean, you can't really expect to get too much pressure. 
and and that and then they're not and 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 the one that I really don't understand is, is as you talked about the spy. I, I don't know how the first half your game plan couldn't involve shadowing the guy that's you know one of the top rush, rushers in the nation right now at the quarterback position. Yeah, uh, maybe the best running quarterback in the country, and uh, he's running you know just hog wild all over your all over your defense through the whole first half of that game. Do you think they just didn't feel like they had an athlete that could match up one on one with her? Maybe that's why they weren't spying. It's I mean, hard to say about a pretty athletic UT defense. But. Yeah, I, I think that you know I, I don't think they thought a day away had had the speed to to get to the edge and beat him to the edge. I think they thought Osai could, but they used him in a lot of different ways, and you know they they had him all over the field. He was he was coming after the quarterback. He was you know backing off. He was doing a lot of different stuff. He did have three quarterback hurries, so there was some pressure. There. Right, yeah. and 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 that, and you know, then you take. I, I think they thought if they take Osai and use him as just specifically a spy, that, that kind of takes one of their best players out of their out of their pass rush game plan. And mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and defend. The, the game plan because it obviously wasn't very good. Yeah. It did not work very well. Uh, and I think if they play Oklahoma again, I, I also think that some of it may have come back to, you know, you're just beat up. You're so beat up on defense. Yeah. And you're just trying to, you're just trying to limp across the finish. I mean, trying to limp so you can get your, some of your guys back. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like this. And I keep going back to this because I've come to expect Texas to have a pretty good defense the last couple of years since Todd Orlando took over. Um, this... I keep questioning what I watched on TV didn't look like it was it looked very obviously like a bad game plan and I wonder why that would come up and the only thing I could come up with was that you're just what you're saying that they don't have the horses to do what they need to do right now they replaced what was it eight defensive starters off last year's team um, a quarter, heck, half of the starting lineup on defense is injured right now or got injured in this ball game. I'm, I'm just not sure that they have the, the, the men to get in there and really execute what, what Orlando wants to execute. And that may be of what, what we saw defensively this last year. Right. They, I think that some of the game plan was, was what they did. And that's, you know, you're going to have to almost <laughs> – let Oklahoma run up and down the field and then hope he can make some stops in the 20s, which inside the 20s, which surprisingly actually was kind of working. <laughs> Until CeeDee Lamb started, decided to take it in from the 50. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Until they negated that whole need for a red zone offense at all. <laughs> exactly. In the second half. Yeah, man. It, uh, that, you're right that once the field uh, got short, the Texas defense stepped up in a lot of ways. And that's also where you started seeing pressure come. Whenever they were between the 20s, if you will, it was more don't let them get the home run play. They were trying to play back, play man, safety over the top, uh, three down linemen, try not to let them get a home run. And then once it shrunk up, that's when you started seeing the pressure coming, and that's when you started seeing Jalen Hurts make some mistakes. So yeah, uh, I guess that may have been the game plan there. And, and they, you, you saw safeties playing 25 yards off the ball. You know, it was it was pretty obvious that they didn't want to get beat deep, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by Rambo and and – and, and, and Lamb and, you know, whatever other guy that, tech, that Oklahoma's going to find to run, run out there and <laughs> run a four three forty, um, But, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that was kind of uh, – it was keep things in front of you. And the game plan, you know, we, we, we bashed it quite a bit, deservedly so. Uh, but the game plan would have worked a lot better if guys were making tackles, you know. Very true. <laughs> Execution uh, would have been nice. 
because Jalen Hurts, he did not look very shifty, but he sure got everybody to miss him. <laughs> See, yeah. I mean, it was just little sidesteps left to right. Not even uh, – I think I heard one of the announcers uh, say that he was – uh, making a, a juke move down the field, yeah. uh, alluding to the fact that he wasn't really going straight left to right. He was sticking north-south. It, it wasn't really all that much, that, but he was just able to get guys off of his hip enough to where he could run right through an arm tackle. It, it kind of reminds me, uh, you know, back back in the day of, of the way Terrell Davis ran. I'm not comparing the two, <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, that's, that's kind of – he always had that, you know, one cut – yeah. Get up field kind of kind of thing going on, and I felt like that was that was what he was doing. You know, it's a it's a power cut. You know, he's he knows this he knows this guy's breaking down because he's going to have to you know try and tackle a two hundred and you know twenty pound quarterback who, who's who's going to pack a punch. And if you can get him to look down and just make that one little cut, and they're not square on him anymore. He's going to run through every arm tackle that anybody puts on him. You know, I tried to jot down a couple of takeaways from the game. You know the. The overarching themes, if you will, and, and I don't think you can get away from uh, the the biggest one, in my opinion. And I know this is the Sports Illustrated Longhorn Maven podcast, but OU's a real contender. That's what I saw on the field. OU hasn't had a defense in years, and that was a legitimate defense out there. They have the opportunity to make some noise this year. Yeah, it, it's been the the over the overarching theme the last few years has been you know if you could put an average defense on the field with that offense, you know, a competent defense that that's, this team might be back to back national champions, mm-hmm. you know, the last two years. I mean, they were that good on offense. Mm-hmm. You know, they were within a field goal of beating Georgia two years ago and, you know, got off to a really slow start and had to come back last year against Alabama. But you know, there's every chance in the world that this could be a back to back defending national title team. If, if Alex Brett showed up there two years ago. It looked different. It was an obviously different defense out there, and, and that starts right, right there with the coordinator, you know? It starts with the coordinator and, and that defensive line, too. I mean, those, those guys were, you know, they they were scheming them into good places, but they were beating off the – they were beating a very good Texas offensive line off the ball. I mean, we've talked about it. This might be the best group of five Texas has put out on the field in, you know, this decade – and there were times they looked like they were standing still against those OU guys. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was impressive to see them uh, in person for sure. Well, and then taking it to the next level, we don't want to talk about OU too much, right? Um, <laughs> uh, the positive side of this: Texas can play with anyone in the country, but they just aren't up to a true national championship contender. And the two teams they've lost to are national championship contenders. It's almost like they're kind of that next tier down. And I know after beating Georgia last year, Texas fans wanted to be in that real conversation. And I think leaving this game, you know that they're not. Yeah. I mean, as far as the, the college football playoff or the national title scene goes, Texas is probably out of it for the year, uh, you know, barring some absolute mayhem down the stretch um, and and probably deservedly so I mean they're they're not quite to that tier yet they they're at the tier that that could beat any of those teams above them in, in any given week but they probably aren't going to be able to roll off the kind of schedule that any of those teams are doing right now and what let's just talk for a second about why what, what what's the deficiency that you see 
where does Texas need to improve to get to that level? It's, I mean, there was, I think, I don't think there's one big thing like, hey, if, if you know, if the secondary plays better, if this group plays better. I just don't think that as a group, they are playing, I think that they're, I think they're still playing a little tight in those big situations. And, and you know, in those, in those one to two to three plays a game that, that great teams, that elite teams make to, to win games, they're, they're stumbling. They're, they're dropping passes. They're, you know, you know, dropping against LSU, dropping a surefire touchdown uh, on fourth and goal. Against Oklahoma, they're, you know, bobbling fair catches inside the five-yard line. You know, they're missing tackles on C.D. Lamb when they've got five guys around them. Uh, just, it's just little plays, and it's on both sides of the ball that they just aren't quite – they aren't quite making those those elite team plays yet. I, I, I agree. There's some execution there. Got to take that next level. Make the tackles. You know, you, you can't be arm tackling. You can't drop big plays that game changing type plays. If those two things changed in this ball game, then there might be a different outcome. So I, I think you're right on that analysis. It's it's some of the little things, and you know, it really is just growing up to that next level. I, I think on the other side, there's also one get healthy, yeah. but that would that would have had a, a potential to make an impact on this game. But this is football; it's a contact sport. You're always going to have injuries. It's not like OU didn't have in injuries. So the second part of that is depth. You've got to build up depth. Tom, uh, Tom Herman has not been afraid to start young players. He has come in here and start freshmen right off the bat. In fact, he says it's his plan with most, you know, skill position type players. If you're good enough, you're out there. But to develop the depth necessary to be able to match up with OU whenever you've got five starters down on defense, you have to have depth. And you can't be starting freshmen and sophomores because you'll never develop depth that way. So what's got to happen is this group that he's got that out there on the field, I think they've got to grow and be good enough to keep some of those freshmen and sophomores on the bench next year, you know, maybe for some of them for the rest of this year. You've got to have those juniors and seniors starters that allow the freshmen to grow and develop so you have that depth. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of what needs to happen for Texas to get back on the, the level of a even a, a – OU and LSU or even an Alabama or a Clemson, you know, Clemson lost every defensive lineman they had last year, and they've got the second best defensive lineman in the in college football this year. They, they've they got the the guys coming up through the program, and it takes time for, for Herman to build that type of depth, especially whenever you're coming in starting freshmen and sophomores. Oh, for sure. And uh, you're seeing it on the recruiting trail. You know, Texas is pulling in consistently top 10, top 5 classes. There's there's talent coming in. It just you can't do it with just one class. You can't do it with just two classes. It, mm -hmm. It's if you, to develop the kind of embarrassment of riches I, that I would say really only Clemson and Alabama probably right now have. Uh, you've got to have sustained success on the field, and you've got to. I mean, and you've got to have sustained success in, in recruiting, and and you got to develop them. Yeah, for Char sure. Charlie Strong recruited well. Yeah, but not all those players ended up reaching their potential. And that's, that's where I think you've got to rely on Tom Herman to build a program that can be, be at that level. 
Right, and it, and it's 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 rotating guys in and out. You know, it was what they were doing earlier this year. You saw a lot of younger, a lot of these guys that are playing now were getting some meaningful reps earlier this year when they were healthy, because they did feel they were deep enough at, at in, in some of these positions, especially in the secondary, where you know that's that's one area where they have luckily been able for them been able to recruit well enough to stem the tide on some of some of these injuries mm-hmm. and, and not just get completely embarrassed with walk-ons out there. Yeah. Uh, which you know most programs if, if you lose you know five starting members of your secondary you're going to be playing some some guys that uh, normally aren't getting meaningful reps and right now I think you've got you know capable guys yeah you know, maybe not maybe not elite guys you don't got Caden Stern's level guys out there but everybody out there is capable of starting at least one Big 12 program in the and I think whenever you see that in the linebacking core. Whenever you see that on the defensive line, whenever a Malcolm Roach goes out and you do have a next man up, you know, that's whenever I think Texas takes this, the next step. Oh, yeah. And, and in the trenches, depth in the trenches is something that really only elite teams have. I mean, you know, when you're able to go too deep in, at, at, your, at your defensive lineman positions and linebacker positions, uh, that it definitely – it's definitely a mark of an elite team. Um and and it's it's hard to do and it's hard to do in this area of the country for some reason. A lot of those a lot of those defensive linemen and, and, and you know the, the elite linebackers like to go like to go over to the Alabamas and the Georgias and the that that area. But it's something you're starting to see more of. I mean, I think Keandre Coburn is an example of a big recruiting win. Uh, a guy that could be playing anywhere in the country. But you know you got to stack those guys up, like we said. You know, so it's going to come down to doing it over the next few recruiting classes as well. If Texas keeps recruiting like this, and you stop seeing freshmen on the field um, in the first half of the season, that's when you'll know. You know, when you're still bringing in these top five classes, but your juniors and seniors are holding them off the field, that's when you'll know that you've got depth. Or when it's a real rare occasion to see one of those freshmen do it. You're like, holy crap, holy cow, you know. <laughs> you know, like uh, like at LSU, you know, we had, uh, you know, the, the freshman cornerback, uh, Stingley, uh, win the starting job, and, and everybody was just like, wow. You yeah. Know? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's really what it comes down to. All right, well, uh, enough talking about the uh, Texas OU game. Uh, let's move on and talk a little bit about Kansas. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I'm just happy. You know, we, we can go into, go into a little more in-depth on Kansas. I'm just happy Les Miles is back. He, <laughs> he makes college football better. He, he does. I was, I was, that was probably the most disappointing thing at a Big 12 media day is that he – you know, didn't pull any, any shenanigans. It was a pretty straightforward press conference. Mm-hmm. I, I think at the time they were dealing with the, the whole Puka Williams, uh, you know, controversy, mm-hmm. you know, him only sitting out one game. But um, and he was kind of keeping his head down. I, 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 I'm kind of hoping this year Kansas wins like two or three games that they maybe shouldn't. You know, I won't say, you know, for Texas fans, I'm not saying that I hope they win this week. But, you know. <laughs> You know, win, win a couple games that, he, that they shouldn't so that he can come in next year, you know, just thumping his, his chest and, and being full ass. Yeah. Well, uh, let's just dive in uh, a little bit of, of the Kansas preview. They're 2-4 and four overall, 0-3 in Big 12. Really not too much surprise there. They did get a win over uh, Indiana State. They started out the year with two FCS schools. I guess 
an FCS school and then a recent transition, if you will. Uh, but Indiana State was really close, and they're, they're one of the better schools in the FCS. They're expected to, to make some noise, but still, Kansas won 24-17 on a last-minute touchdown. That's, that's already not a good sign. Um, they did beat Boston College. Uh, lost to Coastal Carolina, which is, you know, in Texas State's Sunbelt Conference over here. Uh, lost 12-7. to Boy, that's a boring game. Um, but, uh, you know, Coastal Carolina just moved up to FBS uh, a couple of years Sounds ago. Sounds like they sent their uh, elite baseball program out there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you, you, could have a, uh, you could have a Kansas-Coastal Carolina baseball game in 12-7. Yeah. That, that might actually be a thing. <laughs> Um, they also lost to West Virginia, but they did keep it close. Um, and then they got blown out by TCU and OU. Uh, so that kind of rounds out their, their opening part of the year. But the real interesting part about this team is, one, they're coming off a bye week in which they fired their offensive coordinator. So Les Miles gets hired, hires all his guys, gets in there, and six weeks into the season, boom, fires the offensive coordinator. And who do they hire? A guy nobody's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> They, uh, they promoted Brent Dearman. Uh, he was, I looked up his title. He was a senior analyst, quote, senior analyst on the football team. So he wasn't a quarterback's coach or a wide receiver's coach or anything like that. He was a senior analyst. Um, but they also signed him to like a six-year contract. So they must really believe in him. Um, and uh, it's really tough to find much background on the guy. He, he went and coached under Gus Malzahn uh, as a... A, a, a either a grad transfer or an analyst position, and then went to his alma mater, Bethel, um, wherever that is, D3 school, um, and runs and last year and really blew up. Um, their offense went to essentially the best you can ever imagine, uh, <laughs> scoring 55 points a game, averaging 540 yards uh, a game. I mean, it just went crazy. I was trying to figure out a little bit more about this guy, and it says he literally wrote a book called The Evolution of the RPO. He yeah, literally he, wrote the book. He wrote the book. <laughs> so I guess that's what we can expect, but nobody really knows what this guy's going to bring to the, the table. You know, you, you talk about, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that Tom Herman said not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It sounds like he threw out the baby, the bathwater, you know. All the baby stuff, uh, everything that was in the bathroom. Like these guys are just starting completely from scratch. We have no idea what the Kansas offense is going to look like. You know, after after two weeks to to really overhaul things. I mean, does he just tweak it? Are they still running that downhill you know style that they they've been running earlier in the year where they they were they were using a fullback and they were really a more traditional type offense uh, compared to what you normally see in the Big Twelve, but. It could be. It could be anything. So I, I saw that Deerman said that he believes in the RPO. He thinks it's the perfect uh, offense because it allows the quarterback to not to always have the right decision in front of him to always be able to make the right decision. Whereas when you're stuck in a run or a pass, um, I guess we should say a run pass option is what an RPO is. So when you're stuck in a run, if it's the wrong call then you're automatically wrong. If you're stuck in a pass and it's the wrong call, you're automatically wrong. If you leave the option open, the quarterback always at least has the chance to make the right decision. And so that's what he believes in. But I saw a quote from him that said that the RPO that he runs allows the offense to run focus from the beginning. So the run, 
the, the focus of the offense is still the running game, and then the pass plays off of it. So I think what you're saying, that, that downhill attack that you saw from, from Kansas, I think a lot of that will still be there. I've actually, you know, I've, I've read, read a couple of articles about him, and, and it sounds like, you know, he kind of tries to mo- model after kind of the Oklahoma model as far as, you know, being multiple in your stats and, and, and you know, being a run-first team that is also an explosive passing team. Uh, you know, a lot of teams are trying to do the Oklahoma model, you know, and it, it, there's only one team doing it right now. Um, I, I don't think you're going to see him turn this thing into a juggernaut overnight, but it certainly throws a, a monkey wrench into trying to prepare for him. So I was trying to figure this out, too. If you're going to run an RPO, you've got to have a quarterback who can actually run. Um, I mean, it's not a 100% requirement because he could fake the handoff and then pass every time, but you kind of have to have a mobile quarterback. And uh, I'm sitting here looking at the stats for uh, Carter Stanley, quarterback for Kansas, and he has a whopping 23 yards rushing on the season. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I don't think... I don't think you're going to see, you know, Jalen Hurts type uh, <laughs> open field running to this week. But and the other thing about running the RPO is those guys need to be so good at it that it's just that that reads second nature. They're not mm-hmm. thinking about it at all. Very true. Uh, you know, we saw, you know, Texas, you know, is running a lot more RPOs this year than they, they have in the past. And, you know, Ellinger talked about it, it takes time to for that to not be something you think about and just something that. You react to. Yeah, you take the snap, you watch the defensive end say, yeah. does he break down or does he cut in? And that's your decision. Or you watch the outside linebacker, does he shade right or shade left? And that decides if you're going to throw the ball or run the ball outside. I mean, it, it, you're right. It, it, it is such a thinking offense. It is so cerebral that it's not something that comes naturally. And it's going to be really hard to put in over a bye week. Right. They're, I mean, it looks complicated from the outside, but usually these quarterbacks have run enough repetition that it's actually a couple of simple little reads. Mm-hmm. But when you're first starting out, it, it, it looks like it looks like you're trying to, you know, read Latin out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that's why I don't think you're going to see them just come out with a completely. I, I think you're going to see maybe some tweaks and some some stuff that comes off of what they've done all year. But I, I just can't see Kansas completely installing an entire new offense in two weeks. Well, and when you talk about some of their key players, Stanley's thrown the ball pretty well, but they are a run-first offense. Um, he has 12 touchdowns to four interceptions, 65% completion rate. So he's been playing He's been playing pretty good throwing the ball, if you're keeping it in context with Kansas. Right. Um, and, but really the playmaker is Puka Williams. That, and you talked about him sitting out earlier in the season. But... 445 yards, one touchdown. I know it's hard to really garner stats when your team doesn't score very often, but nobody, I guess Williams is the only one that jumps out here. Right. I I was thinking about this on the way here, and if you had a, uh, if if you took all the Big 12 players and put them into a pool and let every team draft, Puka Williams is the only player that could be considered a first or second round draft pick on this whole Kansas team. I mean, he he could play anywhere in the he could play anywhere in the league. He could play anywhere in the country. Uh, he's a really really good running back. Uh, really elusive. You, you talk about you know, some of the struggles Texas had tackling. This guy's going to test them in some of those ways. And you know maybe maybe this new scheme is is just finding new ways to get 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 Williams some some more plays in space mm-hmm. and and really. Maybe that's going to be Kansas' game plan is try to, 
you know, try to use him in the passing game and try to use him in some other ways where, where he gets one-on-one shots on some of these Texas defenders that, you know, maybe you're still looking for some confidence after last week. I, this is kind of a bit, it's a little bit of a mystery, but I mean, that, I, I think that they're going to try to find ways to feature their best player. I think that's number one. I think that's what any coach tries to do. (laughs) It's just, um, it's difficult when you only have one that stands out on that that type of level, you know. It's a little more easy for a defensive coordinator to take away one player, uh, you know, Puka Williams, than it is to take away three at OU, you know. Which is Um, certainly what, I mean, Orlando's a stop-the-run-first kind of guy anyway. mm -hmm. Uh, This week it's going to be, you know, that in spades. I mean, I I expect to see a a lot of what they did against Rice, you know. Guys getting to come downhill, make some tackles, get some confidence. Uh, this is this could be a good week for some guys to, you know, put that OU game behind. Well, and I, I think it's just a theme of the the year for the Texas Longhorns. But uh, any injury updates? Anybody coming back to to play this week that you know of? That you know, last week it was obvious that that Colin Johnson was very needed for this ball club. But it, there's just so many people still missing. Is there is there anybody that's rolling back into play maybe to help this team on the stretch run? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Johnson left the game last week. Uh, there was thought that he might have a concussion. He's expected to be back. Colin Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's more than one Johnson on the team. <laughs> um, but, you know, Whittington's probably still at least another week away. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of these other guys are, are really looking like they're going to be ready to go. Uh, you don't think this is the week that the troops start coming? No, no, no. I, unfortunately, I think I think we might be not just this week. Maybe maybe two, three weeks away before we really start seeing, you know, the guys returning. You know. Well, and I was reading injuries. over some of the injuries that were out there, and it's MCL and it's knee. It's it, it's they're not dings and dents. You know, there's some pretty serious injuries out there. Oh, for sure. You know, broken bones. You know, you know. Uh, Thompson, Josh Thompson has a broken foot. Uh, you lost last week. You lost Chris Brown with a broken forearm. You know he had to get surgery. It, it's it's definitely it hasn't unfortunately been those like nagging, you know, ankle sprain or <laughs> you know things where you you, you kind of where where week to week is something you can watch. A lot of these have been. We're not even going to put it on the table for this week. Yeah, and I think that's what you've seen. And and while Texas has a little bit of time. You know, maybe take for granted that Kansas doesn't have a huge chance to beat uh, Texas this week. But there's some big games coming up if if Texas wants to make it back to the Big 12 championship game. They've got to go to Iowa State. They've got to go to Baylor. Um, you know, I know we're looking – you never look past the next game and we're looking past the next game. Yeah. But but nonetheless, that those are the games that, that Texas is really going to have to see their, their their best performance. Yeah, I mean, two weeks from now you go to, you go to Fort Worth and you go to TCU and that's – Never an easy task. Uh, Can we figured out what TCU is? One week they look like a juggernaut, and the next week they they look terrible. You know. Yeah, I there. There's a lot of that in the Big Twelve right now, though. You know, you've got you know, other than I, I would say maybe Baylor, which you know went down to the wire with Texas Tech last week, but they're probably the only other team that's looked pretty much consistent through the whole season. I think they're the only other top 25 team. Is that yeah, right? They're, they're, they are currently tied for first place in the league standings with Oklahoma. Because <laughs> uh, that's the world you live in in the, in the second week of the year. Yeah. <laughs> also, Matt Rule, I mean, he's just yeah. done a tremendous job. I mean, who could have imagined going from the dumpster fire that Baylor University football was just, I don't know, three years ago oh, yeah. to having a respectable program? 
Um, I, I I thought it was going to be like the SMU death penalty. You know, like I, I thought this this program was done. You know, and and then all of a sudden, just three years later, here they are with a solid football team. You know. Yeah, I know we'll talk more about them when we get to that game. But I mean, just the fact that he's been able to not only clean the program up but have success while he's doing it, it's. It's it's really impressive, and there's a reason why there's NFL guys coming after him already. He'll probably be in the league at some point. Well, you know, I, I think that probably marks the end of the podcast since we've already jumped through the next two weeks <laughs> worth of games. Um, maybe go ahead and get out on this one. So, Chris, uh, it was good having you here. If you want to find out more information uh, about Sports Illustrated Longhorn Maven, you can go to si.com slash college slash Texas. That's right, and uh, we had some uh, you know some stories make it onto the old front page of, of SI.com last week. Uh, you know, hard at work, plugging away, trying to bring you every angle we can possibly find to cover this team from. Uh, before we go, also want to give a shout out to Brian Moore, our producer. You know, he's he's uh, working for very little money back <laughs> <laughs> back, uh, back back in his studio. So uh, shout out to you, Brian, and. Uh, I can't think of anything else. All right. I'll see you next time. All right. See you.